0: Antarctica was a queer rave before it got busted by colonial white farts. Every few thousand years, the North and South Poles flip in an epic act of geomagnetic gymnastics. Such reversals and readjustments are inscribed into our epigenetic archive. We find ways to walk on our head things don't seem as upside-down. The Poles do what they want. They make wild transitions. Tropical paradises that age into frigid neverlands. Astronomer by day, astrologer by night. While cartographers fashion the middle latitudes into being, these monstrous other lands went unmapped. They were Uranian, the anti-human, the negative space that contained the known world. Queerity is vulnerability. The poles became the target of the temperate world's machinery and are now places that experience severe loss. In Antarctica, whole ice shelves the size of countries have broken off. A traumatized body. The Arctic's glaciers are receding. Disembodied land. Like any marginalized entity foraging for a future, their emancipatory rituals inspire fantasies of freedom. In this eccentric embodiment of alienness, they open themselves up to the wild imaginaries of hybrid morphologies that more normative societies cannot accept. When Pythias went on a circumpolar voyage in 350 BCE, he found the mythical Thula a place beyond the North Star on the celestial map of his time. In 330 BCE, in meteorology, Aristotle hypothesized that a mythic southern continent must exist, based simply on the belief in a fundamental equilibrium. He named Antarctica from the Greek anti and arx, meaning opposite the bear, the name for the constellation under which the Arctic. The division of BCE and AD are as polarizing as the temporalities of Antarctica before and after it was discovered. Once a flag had been placed on it, it became part of the teleological world. Cicero's 50 BCE theory of mirroring hemispheres is one in which the Earth is bookended by ice, with an incinerating heat Belly. If the South was the exact opposite of the North, then perhaps people in the South walked backwards. This idea is the basis of the etymology of the words antipodes, opposite feet, and antic thought, counterworth. The sun rose in the west and set in the east. If the north was cold, the south was hot. If the north was civilized, the south was savage. souls resent this dyadic thinking, protesting that they aren't irrelevant theirs, but manifestations of repressed heroes. Over time, Antarctica became home to the freaks of the male medieval geographer's imagination. In the Hereford map drawn by Richard of Holdingham in the 1280s, Antarctica is infested with mythical beasts such as Blemmy, with eyes and mouths on their breasts. Hemanthropods who crawl on the ground. One-legged ceopods who carry their feet above their head like an umbrella. Filly who tests the chastity of their wives by exposing babies to servants. Other maps depict men with dog heads, species with no mouths or mouths so tiny that they suck food through reeds self-eating anthropophagy, androgenes with genitals of both sexes, garamantes that live in waters that freeze at night and boil by day, dancers with sixteen fingers and those with ears that dangle from their knees. The othered assault their humanity And retaining traits exclusive to Homo sapiens. Our phobias are also our fetishes. So while the North was obsessing over reason and order, the South became a place of transhuman transcendence and anarchy. It became the allegory. became contradictory. In 150, Ptolemy had refined the cartography of Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown south land, by fixing coordinates, but he underestimated the scale of the globe, envisioning a fertile, inhabited place, a kingdom in which Marco Polo said gold was so plentiful no one who did not see it could believe it. What he had really visualized was Siam, or present-day Thailand When Constantinople was seized at the end of the 14th century, fleeing scholars brought Ptolemy's work, in translation, to a European public. The dream of a polar garden engendered an age of exploration. Tame the many-headed monsters and divide the land in grids. After a few hundred years of unsuccessful attempts and a period in which the Poles still had the strength for decolonial disobediences, in 1773 British explorer James Cook set out for a second time on Resolution and made the first Antarctic navigation. His account was less than idyllic. Thick fogs, snowstorms, intense cold and every other thing that can render navigation dangerous one has to encounter and these difficulties are greatly heightened by the inexpressible, horrid aspect of the country. A country doomed by nature never wants to feel the warmth of the sun's rays but to lie forever buried under everlasting snow Circa 100 BCE, Erathostein's thought that both Poles were redemptive places, away from the tangled ignorances and dramas of earthly life. Circa 700 AD, Saint Bede described an icy Dantean hell. The imagination of the Poles is polar. Either they are lush with life or desolate and unreachable. But in reality, the poles are not binary at all, Decentering the human and finding an alternate way to survive at the edges. It is not just that the poles are queer. It is that queerness itself is like the poles, always attempting to defy this and that. an ideal elsewhere, a horizon of kinetic potential, an ineffable line expanding and fading from a broken past into a softer future, in the distance, on the outskirts, sometimes very close by, sometimes light years away, accumulating stateless solidarity. By 1910, the South Pole came into focus. British explorer Robert Falcon Scott and Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen both embarked separately for the southern Mecca in June. Scott's Terra Nova left with ponies, but the Norwegian sled dogs were faster. And on December 14th, Amundsen reached the South Pole and casually headed home. On January 3rd, Scott and two fellows, who by then had shot their ponies, continued up the glacier. Their socks and gloves were soaked. They passed the 88 degree mark and noticed sledge prints. Someone had already walked these new paths. They arrived at what they had calculated to be the pole and saw a Norwegian tent. Dispirited. They turned back, but cold and delirious, their energies began to wane, and one by one, each of the three men died. Scott's journals are littered with descriptions of disappointment. Their fatal expedition is documented in a book eponymously titled, The Worst Journey in the World. From drawing maps right up till the dawn of photography, exposing previously unmapped landscapes was a male imperial project. The ice finds counterintuitive methods of resistance. It revels in failure. The mirages, fogs, and mists are deviant ways of staying at the threshold of knowing, refusing to become, towards cyborg. The obscuring glitch, then, is a kind of feminist insistence. As the poles melt, the liquid landscape flashes an oily sheen. Luminous blobs rainbow with refracting light. Ice continues towards fluidity, contorting states alive in the Anthropocene and motile. It defies discipline. It adjusts for a perpetually renewing idea of the natural. A natural that does not progress forwards but unearths ancient viruses and lost ammonites and calls upon a consequence before a cause. It reclaims desire. It takes sex back. The unfreeze is irreversible. But to remember the chronology of how these places were conjectured is to allow for gestures, not of revision, but of reform.